0: A lot of content creators kind of have to make that decision. Are you going to hire and delegate or are you going to be the only person? And if you're going to be the only person, I think that's a fine decision. Just know that like, you're grinding. It's grind mode, baby. You've got to keep doing this for like years. There's a reason why Casey Neistat doesn't do daily vlogs anymore.
1: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of creative elements. Last week's episode with Tiago Forte got a lot of love on social media. So thank you to everyone who tuned in and talked about the show on social media. Posting about these episodes goes a long, long way. I really can't overstate it. So please continue to share the show, letting me know what you think. It gives me something to reshare, to retweet, and it means a whole lot. I see every single one of those posts. I'm still trying to hit our next milestone for podcast ratings, trying to get 100 ratings on Spotify and 250 ratings on Apple Podcasts. So if you haven't left a review yet, please take a moment to do so. It only takes a few seconds and it helps out the show a lot. It is always a pleasure when I have the opportunity on the show to interview another podcaster that I personally listen to. And that's what I have in store for you this week. Today I'm talking to Sam Parr, the co-host of my first million podcast and the founder of The Hustle. Now you may have heard of the Hustle. You may read the Hustle. It's a business and tech newsletter that had one and a half million subscribers when it was acquired by Hubspot in February 2021.:
0: The Hustle started as just a conference that I was doing, and in order to make it popular, I created like, it started as a weekly email leading up to the event, and then I would just use it all the time to talk to people. It didn't become a daily newsletter until basically April 19th of 2016.
1: I was an early reader of The Hustle, and what I remember about it, especially when it was first getting popular, was the style of writing. It felt much more casual than your typical business or tech news, like you were learning about business and tech from a friend, not some soulless brand. But what I didn't actually realize about The Hustle was that Sam started sending these emails not to create a newsletter company to sell tickets for that conference called HustleCon.
0: I sold the company and I was like looking for something to do and so I got into it as like a way to kill time. And I thought the first one was going to lose money. I didn't think it was going to make money and I was like praying that it would break even. But it made like 50 or 60 grand in like 6 weeks and I was like, "Damn, that was cool." Like I really don't want to do this and make this like a thing, but I mean, $60,000 for six weeks was pretty cool. Let's try it again. And I went and rode my motorcycle cross country for like three months. And then I came back and I hosted it again. And this time it made like 150 or $200,000. And I was like, golly, I did not think that was going to happen. And I was like, oh, well, that's just, I just made a year's salary with, you know, only two months of work. That's pretty great. But again, I don't want to be doing these conferences. I don't even like them. They're stressful.
1: And so eventually, Sam gave in and shifted his focus from these conferences to just doubling down on The Hustle as a daily newsletter. Sitting here in 2022, that may not sound like a crazy or even unique idea. But in 2014, when The Hustle started, email newsletters weren't businesses the way they are today. In fact, you could argue that newsletter businesses are what they are today because of The Hustle.
0: In 2014, Groupon had kind of was past its peak But I knew that they were email first. This company called Thrillist, I also think, was past its peak. But they were inspirational to me. And they started as an email newsletter. My friend Andrew Warner has this website called Mixergy.com. And I just read all these interviews about email newsletters. And I loved writing. And I liked making content. And so nothing really was happening at the moment. The skim had launched. And they were getting popular. And besides that, everything else had already happened. It was past its peak And I just was interested in email because it seemed like the easiest way to get my content into people's eyes.
1: And as I shared a minute ago, the hustle was acquired by HubSpot early last year. We don't know what the terms of the deal are. Sam has said that he's taking the number to the grave, but Axios reported that the hustle was valued at $27 million at the time, which neither Sam or HubSpot have confirmed. But before the acquisition, Sam had begun expanding the hustle from being a daily newsletter. They built a community called Trends, which you may recall from episode number 71 when I interviewed Steph Smith. And they also launched a podcast called My First Million, co hosted by Sam and Sean Purry. I feel like I could rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. My First Million is crushing it. It's one of the top business podcasts in the world and receives more than 1 million downloads per month. On that show, Sam and Sean brainstorm new business ideas, interview business builders who are creating big, meaningful companies, and break down the business behind different companies. So in this episode, we talk about the start of the hustle, how Sam learned copywriting, what he calls his most important skill, how he does research, the growth of My First Million, the platforms he sees the biggest opportunities on for creators, and why he's never been afraid of asking questions. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening,
0: and now let's talk with Sam. conferences are just crazy high stress and like there's so much that can go wrong and then i learned through all about email and i was like well i'm like making this conference popular via my this content and i would create a blog and a newsletter and that's like what people love like, you know, screw it. Let's just create like a like a content site and we'll use email to make it popular. And the hustle started as basically a blog and I would send out emails telling people about a new blog post. And then eventually I'm like, I'm an idiot. Like this whole like email thing, like it should only be in the email. Don't even make people click off. Like just put it only in there. Let's do that. And that was it was basically 420 because I remember it was 420 of April. Uh, so 2016, 4, 419 or 420. Well,
1: how many newsletter creators were there as individuals? You know, you had like probably James Clear still at that time, but James
0: Tim Ferris was a friend and an investor of mine, and he hadn't even started it. He invested because he wanted to get into email. My friend Neville Medora, who's like my best friend, he has this blog called Copywriting Course, and he helped maybe like not exactly start, but make it popular. App Sumo, and App Sumo was an email. And besides that, I didn't know anyone who was actively in it, and. A lot of people, like my really good friend now, his name is Dave Nemitz. He's one of my best friends. He started this company called Bleacher Report and he ended up investing in my company. And I told him that I'm going to start with an email business. And he was like, dude, I'm going to invest in you because you're my friend and I like you. But like, this is not that good of an idea. And so, like, a lot of people thought it was pretty dumb. But the, like, all my internet marketer friends, so I'm friends with startup people and internet marketing people, were crushing it on email. And I'm like, this can definitely work. You guys don't know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm wondering what these internet marketing people were doing that wasn't email in 2014.
0: Well, probably Facebook ads, but like internet marketers have always done email because it's always worked. So like when I was a kid, when I was like 15 or 16 years old and I wanted to learn how to meet girls, I remember getting internet marketing emails from this List that I'd signed up for called Double Your Dating, and it was this guy David D'Angelo who like would teach you how to like talk to girls. And I remember getting these like emails, and they were long form text based emails. And I ended up buying like a fourteen dollar book for him. It was basically like the precursor to that book, The Game, which like any any male born between like nineteen eighty and like nineteen ninety five has probably read on how to meet women. And I remember getting his emails, and I just always remembered those emails when I as I got older and started starting a business. So. So that they were always happening. I was gonna say, I bet that taught you a ton about sales. Oh, yeah, because like I knew how to sell stuff just like using my voice. Like I could go door to door and sell stuff. I had a hot dog stand and I could sell stuff to like random strangers. And then it kind of hit me. I'm like, oh my God, this email thing, I'm pretty much doing the same thing, but like I only have to write it one time and I could send it to like an infinity amount of people. This sounds way easier and better. And that's kind of why email was cool to me.
1: Okay, so you were marketing this event and it was doing as well as it was doing based on blog posts. Like it was content that was driving ticket sales when it was in the yeah, first two years.
0: I, I don't think I spent $1 in Facebook ads. If I did buy Facebook ads or any ads, it was like no more than 500 bucks or $1,000. But I'm almost positive for the first three, I mean, eventually we bought ads, but for the first three years, probably the first half a million in revenue, I'm almost positive, not a penny. And I would just write a blog post I would get traffic from Hacker News or Reddit. 3% of people would enter in their email. And then for those 3% of people, I would just send them really cool emails many times a week writing about the speakers. And it built up to like a 10 or 15,000 person email list like in a matter of a couple of months.
1: What was like the headline of the blog post you were
0: writing and then putting on Hacker News? Like how Buffer bootstrapped to $20 million in revenue. Okay, so it's like case studies. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess case studies you could call it that, or it could be like my I told you like my best friend is named Neville Medora. He's this Indian guy who's a copywriter, and I called him the Brown Don Draper. And so like I think the headline was like the Brown Don Draper is coming to HustleCon or something like that. And then I explained like what makes copywriting cool, how Neville does it, and what you're going to learn at HustleCon.
1: So you were living in San Francisco. You're posting on Hacker News. The event was in San Francisco. Am I getting that all right? Mm-hmm. So that was okay, so that was kind of easier to get a flywheel because that distribution mechanism was probably heavily based as far as their user base goes in that same area.
0: Uh yes, but I didn't know anyone when I started it. I lived in San Francisco, but I was 24, 22. Like I didn't like people are like I've got a nice network now and amongst like a little bit of a circle jerky world, I'm have like internet celebrity. But like back then, I didn't have anything. So I would just cold email these people and write on Hacker News And no one knew what HustleCon or the hustle was, but I just had a really good website. Like it was ugly, but the copy was good. So it would capture people's attentions and people are like, what the hell is this thing? Like, what the f- HustleCon? That's a horrible name. What is this? Like, what's this description? Like, you know what I mean? And I got really good at capturing people's attention. I was listening to
1: your interview, I think from last March with Nathan Barry on his podcast. Mm-hmm. And you guys talked about copywriting a little bit. And I think this is probably one of the skills that you are best at, but don't get enough credit for. How do you feel about that? Do you think that copywriting is one of your most important skills?
0: The most important, maybe the most, I mean, like the ability to control your emotions and copywriting. I mean, I'm not always the best at controlling my emotions, but I'm decent at it. I'm pretty good at being comfortable during uncomfortable situations and copywriting. Yeah, I need to get back to it a little bit because once we hired, I didn't have to do it as much. But most everything we did was rooted in copywriting.
1: How do you sharpen that? If if I'm listening to this, if I don't feel like I have that skill as well, what should they be doing to get better at copywriting?
0: So I'm gonna. This is gonna sound like a plug. You don't. No one has to do it. This though, but people ask me that all the time. So I came up with this course called Copy That. It's like 50 bucks. And if you can't afford it, just like do it for free or just like tell me. But I only did it because if you pay 50 bucks, you're more likely to actually follow through. But um, basically, when you learn how to play an instrument, let's say you're learning how to play guitar or even you're learning how to cook. They don't tell you like, go play, make a cool song. You spend years copying other people's music and you learn the texture of what makes a good song. You learn the recipe of what makes a good meal and you copy other people and you see patterns and once you see patterns you know what works and what doesn't and after a while you know the rules you know how to break the rules you know how to follow the rules when to follow when to break you know how to what style you like and you steal from a d- bunch of different people it's kind of like if you want to learn how to be a good a great artist like if you traced for like 6 months or 12 months like you're going to get pretty good and the same things with writing. And this is like a really famous technique for learning how to write called copy work that up until the 1900s was pretty popular. And for some reason, like something changed in the school system where like we we decided that wasn't the way that we wanted to teach kids. But I think that's the best way. And so what I what I did was I would just find... So this thing I created called Copy That, I just find like my favorite bits of copywriting and I annotate it and I explain why it's good. And people are supposed to like copy it out by hand. But what I do is I did that for a long time. And also what I do whenever I'm about to write something, I think in my head what vibe I'm going for and like which author, like whether it's a book author or like a sales page has created something of similar vibe that I want. And I just spend a little bit of time copying it by hand to get in the zone and then I go and write it. I love that. I try to remind myself that anytime I'm about to like
1: buy something or, you know, convert into a subscriber or something like that, to try and pause and see what, what worked here? Like, why did that work on me? And what can I learn from that? Because sometimes I do what you're talking about and I'll like assume that, well, this is an organization or a person that I think does really good work. Let me look at it. But I don't actually have the data and then I'll go back like months later and they've changed their homepage or they've, you know, scrapped that entirely. So it's like, did I just copy something that maybe wasn't even working? <laughs> do you have any like screening for that?
0: Well, no. I mean, what I do is like, when I get marketing emails, a lot of times, I'll just reply to it and I'll say, is this working? Or like, (laughs) you know, like, like I just, I'll, I'll reply to them all the time. So that works. That's what I do.
1: After a quick break, I talk to Sam about his ability to ask the questions on his mind, even if they seem taboo. And we also talk about some of his favorite methods of doing research. So stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreenlink J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Welcome back to my conversation with Sam Parr. If you listen to My First Million, you may be surprised by some of the questions that Sam asks. And it's not that they're bad questions or exceptionally good questions. They're just uncomfortable questions. Questions that may seem taboo or other people would be afraid to ask. Often questions about money. So I asked him how he built the muscle to ask uncomfortable questions.
0: It's been like that since I was a kid. I didn't realize... Like, I I hear what you're saying. And my friend Neville and Kat, Kat makes fun of me all the time for doing that. She's like, you ask these weird questions. And in my head, I'm like, for a long time, I've heard, I would hear people say, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, I don't like, it's hard for me to have empathy with what you're saying. Because I don't understand how you don't ask that. And so I was like that since a little kid. I just like, I would just like go into a building and I'm like, this building's amazing. Who built this? You built it. How long did it take? How did you come up with that idea? What did you pay the people to build? Like I would just, I would just ask questions all the time. I, I don't know why I did it. I just was like, what? I'm just. I never took for granted that the things around us were made by people that are just like me. You know, like if you see like a big building or the government or a big company, oftentimes. I, people just think like, well, it's just there because it's always been there. And that's just how it's been. It's like, no, there was like one person who like had the idea, who convinced a bunch of other people. And that turned into a thing. If I can figure out kind of like copy work, if I can figure out how that's done and I see patterns, I bet I can continue to do that for myself. And so I don't know. It's just it's just been something I've always done. Also, I ask a lot of questions that people are uncomfortable with but they're not uncomfortable, I think, when I ask them because typically I, it's a give and take. So for example, if I said, how much money did you make last year? I'll say, I made this much last year. How about you? Or you know what I mean? Like, I, I, yeah, it's like modeling. Yeah, or I'll ask people questions. Like like let's say, um, okay, m- one of my closest friends is, is a lesbian. Like I I can't empathize with being a lesbian. Like, So I, I can't like reveal something to her about, like that. But when I'm asking her, like, you know, what was that like what, when you came out to your parents? Tell me about that. But, you know, like, and I'll ask in, in such a way where I make it very clear that like, this is coming from a place of like, I'm just curious and I want to know all about you, not from a place of crudeness or, you, you know what I mean? And so oftentimes, if they can tell that your energy really is with good intentions, you could pretty much get away with anything. And this is kind of like what I learned like, when I was dating. I was like, if I can make a girl laugh. I can get away with the, like asking her a lot. Like I could flirt pretty hard with her as long as I can make her smile. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally.
1: It, there's like a couple of different buckets I feel like this falls into. On one hand, it seems like you could use that superpower. And I think you do use a superpower as like competitive research in a really powerful way. But then sometimes it also seems like you're doing it for just gathering as much data on inputs as possible. But I'm curious about the competitive research side of things.
0: What uh, questions because, what, what cash questions did I did you hear me ask people that you thought was uncomfortable or you were surprised well it's usually, by. it's
1: usually something that's like socially taboo. like how much money did you do last year in revenue? Or you know, how much did this cost? That's the type of thing that like right. most people just wouldn't have the the Hutzpah to ask someone, even though they're thinking about it. You know, you walk into a house and you're just like, Jesus, how much did this thing cost? But nobody says that.
0: You know? Yeah, like if I walked into a big house. Oftentimes what I do is I triangulate. So I get someone to tell me what I want to know without them explicitly telling them that. And then when they realize that they've already given me the information for me to get the answer, they'll be like, oh, I already told you. So I'll just give it up. So for example, I walk into a fancy house. Let's say it's a five. If I think it's like a $5 million house and and I I don't know the person well, I would say like, dude, this house is amazing. Like, did you get a loan for this? How did you finance this? Like, or what I would say was not, did you get a loan? I'd be like, Do you have to go to a special bank to get like a jumbo loan for this? And what are the rates? And maybe they'll say something like, oh, I just paid in cash. And I'll say, what the hell? How are you so rich? Or they'll say, you know, I actually didn't have to put a lot down because of uh, this type of bank. i would be like, oh, tell me about that bank. What is that? Why does that work? So you, oh, so you actually didn't put that much down? Like, so are you nervous about paying this off? Uh, Yeah, I'm actually, am nervous. I got to work. You know what I mean? And so like, I understand like, oh, this person maybe isn't as, they're not actually that wealthy or wow, they really are wealthy and this is no big deal. You know what I mean? Like you can triangulate and get all this information by asking things in such a way. One of my favorite things to do is I'll insult someone or I'll compliment them a ton and say something too high and they correct me and the answer's in the middle. For example, let's say, I think it's a $5 million house. I'll say, dude, what is this? Like $8 million? This house is amazing. And they're like, no, 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 no. Or I'll say like, what is this? Like a $2 million house? Like it's not that hard to get. (laughs) And they're like, Yeah, I wish. It was about double that. It's like, oh, okay, now I know. Yeah, so smart. I would actually
1: guess that a lot of people, when you ask these questions, might be excited to talk about it. Because since it is taboo, they don't get to talk about it much. Is that your experience?
0: Yeah, because the goal, you have to, at at times, you want to, with certain types of people, you can sense this where they want to brag. And if they want to brag, I'm like, that's cool. A, like, um, you're, you're probably like, you should be proud. So go ahead, brag away. That's wonderful. And B, I'll let you brag because I'm getting all types of amazing, valuable information and C, I'm making you feel good about yourself and I want to become friends with you. So like, you're going to feel good about yourself. So if you like ask people these questions and you, and I can tell that they want to brag, then I flatter them. If they're a little bit nervous to talk to me, then I just act like whatever they're saying isn't a big deal. Yeah, I'm just okay, like, well, not
1: surprised. Let's, let's take an example. Um, I re-listened to your interview with Rob Deerdeck this morning. Incredible episode. That guy on another level. Uh, yeah, I've heard cool. you guys reference that show a bunch of times since like this episode was incredible. So I, I re-listened to it. Are there people that are still at a level that you have to like get yourself psyched up to interview or talk to or does that come easy with anybody?
0: So like we've interviewed a bunch of billionaires and like not one billionaire I've not been nervous about any billionaire, but like there's two people that we interviewed that aren't necessarily even close to the most financially successful people, but I admire them so much, I was nervous. So, Andrew Huberman, he's like that health and fitness guy who's on YouTube. And like I was genuinely nervous to talk to him because I didn't, I wanted to impress him and I didn't want to look like an idiot. And then the second guy was Ariel Hawani, who like most people have no idea who he is, but he's a famous MMA journalist and he like hosts. UFC chose. He's like a commentator. And for those people, I was like legitimately nervous. Besides that, no, I've, I'm not I'm not nervous because when I used to host HustleCon, I would have like these like baller billionaire folks. So like, I remember one time it was like me, the founder of WeWork, the founder of uh, Away Travel, and then like this lady Payall who started um, ClassPass and then like Casey Neistat. We we're like all in the same room and like i distinctly remember all of them complaining about stuff that i complain about like they're nervous about firing this person they're afraid their thing's not going to work they're embarrassed to go public speak and they're really nervous and i was like oh wow okay you guys like let's say like this person's a billionaire and i'm not i'm like you're not like a million times better than me you're you're maybe like two times or maybe like not better than me at all but you are you know, a million times wealthier or successful than me, but you're not like a million times different than I am. So I kind of got a lot of confidence in doing that once I learned that, like the people I looked up to weren't um, particularly special. Some are, but most aren't. I've had that experience also with
1: a lot of people on the human level, but still it's like so impressive with what they've built from like a business or financial perspective that when I compare that to what I built, it feels like, ah, this little thing that I made over here is bullshit. Does that ever get in your head? Like, not now, but when no, you're in those rooms I, early on in your career.
0: I think people, of course, early on. But now it's different. Is and it's I'm less. I'm not impressed with someone just because they're wealthy or they have a big company. Because if you give it enough time and you follow the steps, the likelihood that you could build a substantial business in, if you like, dedicate thirty years. It's pretty high I think. And I think that's like a misconception. I think that if you de- if you're willing to dedicate like 30 years, take risks, and of course you need some luck, like you got to stay healthy. Like you could build a cool company. So like I believe with a high degree of certainty, I could create a business that makes at least 100 million dollars a year in revenue in most industries given a 25 year period. So when I meet someone who's... And if I build in some industries like software, if it's a $100 million business, that means it's worth like $5 billion. And thus, I would be a billionaire. So with some people, I'm like, I'm not impressed with you just because you have money. I'm impressed with people who do interesting, bold, courageous stuff. And it just so happens that money is one way that we are measuring that output. Other ways are like I don't know, like Mother Teresa, like she wasn't like wealthy, but like she just had and I'm. this is an example, I have no idea anything about her. She just had like some vision to create like an orphanage and convince a bunch of people to give her money and like live this amazing life. I find that to be just as, or Martin Luther King, I find MLK to be just as impressive as Jeff Bezos, you know, both men who had bold visions and were courageous enough to get after it. And one was really wealthy, the wealthiest ever, one likely wasn't that wealthy at all. So I'm not like particularly impressed by someone just because they have money, but I am impressed by people who are like wildly interesting and successful, which is defined as they had an interesting vision and they actually achieved it.
1: Let's go back real quick to what you said about Andrew Huberman and that Ariel Hawani. You said you're a little bit nervous about those interviews. What did you do to prepare for that? Was it any different than what you would typically do or did you just deal with the nervousness?
0: No, I don't do it. I'll tweet out that I'm about to interview them and it gives me ideas for questions. And then I really like, I can mostly not research anyone, but if I do research someone, I just spend 45 minutes ahead of time. I'll read their Wikipedia and read every citation on it. And then I'll scroll through all the comments that I can of all their work and get the vibe and like see what's going on. And I try my hardest not to ask questions that they get asked a lot. One thing that I've
1: heard you say before that I thought was fascinating from a research perspective is you said you go to, you says like newspapers.com or something I love to newspapers. Old newspapers.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, tell me about that. So newspapers.com, I don't know if it's newspapers or newspaper. It was owned, I think, by Ancestry.com, maybe still is. It's like $10 a month and it's an archive of like all the newspapers ever. So for example, I got really fascinated by the guy who started, it was called Rock Financial. Now it's called... Uh, Rocket Mortgage, you know, Dan Gilbert. Yeah, yeah. I was interested about Dan Gilbert, but it's hard for me to learn about someone who's already worth like $15 billion. And everyone agrees that like if whatever his opinion is, like we should probably listen to it because like the guy's been there, done that type of thing. It's a little bit hard to read about that. So I like to read autobiographies. But then even then, it's still hard to read because we already know the outcome of the decisions made. And so what I like to do is figure out what was going on in their head and what was the perception of them and how was it described when they were doing it. And so with Dan Gilbert, his company was called Rock Financial. I'm ballparking here, but I think it went public in like 89 or 99. I forget. So when it went public, it was doing like 100 million in revenue. So I went to newspapers.com. I typed in Dan Gilbert like... Rock Financial. And then I like looked at all the articles about the year went public. And then I went even further. And I found the first time that he was mentioned. And then I read every articles like three or four years before the IPO to figure out what people were saying about him. And it helps me normalize their behavior and understand what people were thinking about this person and how this person acted and um, the confidence that they had early on. And like, Oh, wow, this person wasn't that great early on or didn't come off that great. Or, wow, this guy like should not have felt that way, but he was super confident. That's inspiring. So anyway, I do that constantly. I do that all the time.
1: Yeah. I want to, I want to learn more about the triggers that get you to do this type of stuff. Cause when I listen to my first million, you and Sean have clearly just like dug deeper into these nooks and crannies of businesses that obviously like the people who love listening to show haven't gone that far into it. So what is the trigger for you to say, you know what, I'm going to go to newspapers.com and I'm going to go back 20 years and read about Dan
0: Gilbert. Every single biography that I read, I do that. And I read probably one or two a week. I read a lot. So I'm reading right now about the Four Seasons, the founder of the Four Seasons, because I, I'm i like, I'm interested in hotels. And I'll, I use it while I'm reading to, to like get context. Like, oh, he said his son died of cancer this year. I'll go and like be like, oh, did the newspaper talk about it? what did they say? So I do that for every biography I read. But then the trigger can be way smaller. For example, let's say that I'm on a road trip and in the, like, this is a real example. In the middle of nowhere, there was this massive building. It was huge and it said, like, Smith Pork Company or something like that. And I was like, what the hell is this thing in the middle of nowhere? And then I look it up on Wikipedia. Well, first I go to their website and on the very bottom, it says, like, copyright and it says, like, who owns it. And it says, like, Tyson Chicken or something like that. And I'm like, oh, so Tyson Chicken bought this company. Oh, and I look it up. I Google it on newspaper or somewhere. I'm like, oh, Tyson Chicken bought this building for $100 million. Oh, it was started by this guy and he actually owned the Rams and then he sold it to the current, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just like, kept, I'm like, oh, and he made his money from his security company. What the, the security company, the security, they had a thousand employees. Security companies have a thousand <laughs> employees. What's ADP and then, or whatever. What's the, the security? Co- and then like, that's just how I do it. I just like go down rabbit holes quickly. And I read this. So I, I'll read biographies of people like the wikipedia page but then i i read all the cited sources it just fascinates me i hear you reference footers all the time
1: whether it's like citations or you just said like the copyright i've heard you say like actually go to a website and go to the advertising link in their footer to find out like what their traffic is how many visitors i get
0: yeah i do that all the time and so i you always gotta re- i always read the cited sources
1: When we come back, Sam and I talk about how podcasting today compares to starting a newsletter back in 2014. And towards the end of this episode, Sam tells me what platforms he would focus on if he were building his own creator business today. You're gonna wanna hear this and it's coming up right after this. Hey, welcome back. When Sam started the hustle in 2014, email wasn't exactly new, but it was still early for email newsletters as a business. Now that he's a few years into podcasting with My First Million, I asked Sam how podcasting today feels compared to starting a newsletter in 2014.
0: Newsletters moved quickly. So like starting what what the hustle nowadays would be way harder today. Possible, but harder. Because? Because there's more competition and the price to acquire a customer has gone up. We got to 100,000 people organically, and then we started buying ads. And we acquired users now it's just more expensive it's definitely not possible but it's harder and in a very short amount of time i felt like it got like done well and there wasn't much software podcasting you could say the same like if you started in the 90s you definitely would have a leg up but i would say that still the technology around podcasting although there's a lot of entrants and there's always new podcasts and there's a ton of content the software around behind it is like still pretty shitty like if you buy an ad for your podcast, which we do now, we just start doing that. It's not like an email where I know exactly I, like I, I can I know the person's like full name, where they work, where they came from, how much we paid for them. I don't have that type of data with podcasting. And so the data and attribution is still pretty bad. If like if I look at which episode worked and why, it's hard for me to tell. I'm like, I don't know why it's working, but it is. Have you figured
1: out anything to compensate for that terrible data cuz I I knew this would bother you as like a data and optimization person cuz the metrics and the analytics are terrible.
0: Yeah, we use this thing called Chartable which is decent but it's still like the best of the worst that helps and it's so complicated to use that I don't entirely understand it. Like you have to use this thing called the deep link. And I'm like, I don't, I don't fucking know how, how that works. Like, where, Whereas with Facebook marketing and Google analytics, I, I could just click three buttons and I could just tell you all, I have this dashboard, I could tell you everything. So yeah, it bothers me. And so we use Chartable, we also use Megaphone, but in my mind, they're all still rudimentary.
1: Yeah, I use the same stack actually. And Chartable, you're right, it is like the best of the worst, but you're also only getting data from like Apple
0: Podcasts and Spotify mostly. And um, it's not even that good at data. It feels like educated guesses.
1: Yeah. So, so how are you making hard. decisions on what you guys do with the show?
0: Dude, that's a good question. And I hate the answer. But the answer is, is I don't know. I don't know. People <laughs> ask me, why is it working? I'm like, I don't know. We, 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 we started buying ads. I think to, it's February now, January, December, I think December. And we're in the range of 2 million monthly. We, were at, we had 2 million monthly uniques in January or December, I forget. So like 2 million a month, I think it's pretty good. And oh, yeah. if, you, if you ask me why, I don't know. I don't know. We, I don't know what we did. We, we worked hard on making good content, but like I, I literally have no idea. Now we've got a plan to buy, to get the 5 million. We're going to buy ads and that's a good plan. That's going to work. Uh, Jordan Harbinger is my buddy and he showed me how to do it. So that's going to work. But like, how did we get the initial traction? Dude, I don't know, man. Sean's talented. I'm pretty good. It just worked.
1: And is that ad buying playbook for podcasts mostly through
0: agencies, or is it is it on you other could. shows? Is it in
1: podcast players? What's your mix look like?
0: Jordan Harbinger has like ten or fifteen million uniques a month or listeners a month, and he was like in year one I spent four hundred thousand dollars, in year two eight hundred thousand, in year three one point three million, and I was making more revenue than that on podcast ads, so it was a, a profitable venture. But basically, I did I bought ads on other podcasts and sometimes they'd be really cheap, like five hundred dollars, other times like five thousand or twenty thousand dollars. And I would just track it and whichever one worked, I would just do it a bunch. And then I would buy ads on all the podcast players. So like Castbox. I think now you could do it on Spotify and whatever else, Stitcher, whatever else there is, I would do it there too. And I did a combination of that and I just had a spread the way I mean you could go to an agency if you're just starting out, even if we're not just starting out anymore, but I think it's still better to do it this way. I'll just make a spreadsheet of the thirty or fifty podcasts that you think would have a good market, and then you should reach out one by one and try to make it broker a deal. And then um, you can like do swaps. So, like we'll mention you, you us, whatever, and that works. And then you also make a list of all the places that you're going to buy ads that are a podcast player, and you just track the results. Do
1: you use the chartable links for those campaigns to know
0: like which show is sending you? I don't run that program anymore, but when I But they do and I used to. Yeah.
1: How important do you think video is to your podcast?
0: So uh, sometimes not, sometimes very. So like we were going hard on Twitter video for a while and it didn't make sense. Like we would make these cool videos, but they didn't actually drive much views even though they were sick. And so we're like, this is stupid. And I still think that's stupid to do it. Like there's no, I mean, it's fun, but there's no ROI. And then we did this thing where... We told our fans that we'll give five grand to the people who make videos from our YouTube clips and put it on TikTok and make it cool. And we got, I believe, 20 million views in like 10 days from those videos. And that made a difference. I had all like my high school friends would DM me and be like, dude you're all over my feed and that when, when when i knew multiple people were reaching out to me or i would have people say like hey on um on the pod you said this this and this and i'm like what are you talking about that was 6 months ago and then i would look at like the twitter or the tiktok and like oh someone just like made a video of this like really old thing and that's when i knew that was working so that tiktok thing worked so now we do we we do that now all the time and that worked and then and we also try to get big on youtube our, like all, virtually all of our Like 95% of our views come from podcast players and and 5% from YouTube. We're trying to get that to be much higher, but that's been a hard nut to crack. That's for sure.
1: When you did that campaign to have your listeners turn your video into TikToks, was that $5,000 per person who did it? Or was it like, hey, whoever drives the most views?
0: We basically said like, we're going to give five grand to one or two or three people And it's just gonna be, we're just gonna make up the rules. So, like, we're gonna do a combination of whoever gets the most views, whoever's the most creative. Like, we're just gonna pick what our favorite and it could be on anything. So, just like impress us. And I think we gave away two or three prizes. And so I kind of screwed it up when I told people (laughs) the hashtag to use. I like said two different hashtags. So, I think if you search on TikTok, MFM clip, and then if you search MFM clips, plural. You'll see all the videos and uh, like some of them have millions of views. How many people made an attempt? It was hard to tell because all their handles were like the same. It was like MFM shorts, MFM cuts, Mm. MFM short. Like so, but I would maybe between the huge five to 25. No, probably 10 to 25, 10 to 20 ish. You could see it though. So if, if you're listening, just go to TikTok and type in MFM clips and then do the same on Twitter and Instagram and you'll see them. And you hired the
1: person who won, or at, at least there are, to hire, yeah, right? yeah,
0: yeah. Well, we now we give them a a retainer, and they just make stuff. Yeah,
1: I was going to ask, what do you think the return is? Would there be diminishing returns, and how quickly to just continue to do that same like contest as opposed to hire one
0: person on retainer? I think it would be wise to do the contest again. We should do that contest again. I'm actually, I'll look at it now. We 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 should continue doing that for sure. Because probably you know, diminishing returns after a while. For sure. But then you could also have like two or three people on retainer. And we probably should do that. So our now our, our handle has 37,000 followers and 600,000 likes. So it's pretty sick. We definitely should probably keep doing it. It looks like so MFM clips. Oh, I can't see. I have to be on my phone, I think. But MFM clips, if you just search that, like there's so many people who have made videos and they've got a lot of views. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: Well, a lot of people in this show, pretty much everyone that listens to the show are creators, but they lean more on like the craftsman side of things rather than like the growth or marketing side of things, I would say. So whether it's email or podcasting or just content generally, what do you think people get wrong when it comes to creating content and trying to build a business
0: around that? So you have to make sure you don't build a prison. And I almost did that. So the hustle is a daily email. That's so much work. At first, it was kind of like the Sam Parr show. It was like built around me. And that is good because it's actually a really easy way to get traction. You know, People feel like they know you. And if you could can sustain that for a while, it's amazing. It's, I couldn't sustain it. So we hired people so like I could make money in my sleep and that was good for me. I do think it made the product a little worse. But a lot of content creators kind of have to make that decision. Are you gonna hire and delegate or are you gonna be the only person? And if you're going to be the only person, I think that's a fine decision. Just know that like you're grinding. It's grind mode, baby. Like you're got you to keep doing this for like years. There's a reason why Casey Neistat doesn't do daily vlogs anymore. You know, there's a reason why um, the Paul brothers, they had a, a vlog and these guys are like the highest energy people there are and they couldn't do it. One
1: of them would rather get punched in the head than continue to do like a daily vlog.
0: <laughs> it's really hard. It's really, really hard to do that stuff every day in order, but in order to make it big in the content world, if you're not putting out something every day, you better be putting something out every week. And I know that's some generalization, and you could be like, well, this person only creates once a year. Like Steven Spielberg creates once every three years. I'm like, Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, true. But for a lot of people, particularly the people listening, you're pretty much are gonna have to make shit every day. And that's not a problem but just know what you're getting into, and there are ways around it. So you hire, you don't cover current events, you don't set yourself up on a daily schedule for a long time, it's tough. There's the, the
1: make shit side of things, but that only matters if people are looking at it too. You guys did paid acquisition for the hustle, you're doing it now for the podcast. How should people be thinking about that? When does it make sense to start doing paid acquisition?
0: When you've built a machine. So like, look, like the this guy named Kevin Ryan started this company called Business Insider. And he kind of advised me early on and he told me the best analogy. He goes, You should you should spend more money to grow. And I'm like, I'm scared. He goes, Look, if I gave you a machine and you put one dollar into this machine and you got out a dollar twenty or any number above dollar, what would you do? And I was like, I would put money in that machine. He goes, damn right you would. You would get a dump truck, fill it with money, and back it up into that machine and pile as much money as you can into it. Because you've got a money-making machine, baby. You got to go. And I realized you're right. So I got to work on my machine. And so we started spending money when we understood what our LTV is, when we understood what our cash flow cycle was and cash management. And so like, how much can we spend? How long does it going to take to earn that back? Are we comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with these margins? Once we figured that out, which happened in about a year or 10 months, then we started spending hard. And one of my mistakes in building the company, was I didn't spend enough. I was too um, frugal. I should have went harder because Facebook ads are way more expensive now than they were. Right now, TikTok ads are pretty cheap. So, like, if you can find something that works, like through paid marketing, and it's profitable or at a level that you're comfortable with, go hard because those windows close. And I know you did a lot of paid acquisition through
1: Product Hunt for a while. You know, so when you go directly to a a platform or some other digital property that's not a Facebook-sized ad broker, do you find that the economics of that are more favorable or less favorable too? They're more.
0: The economics are more favorable, but they're harder. So the way it works with a lot of stuff when you're growing, even when you're already big, but probably not true if you're already big. But like you have to be really big for this to not be true. But basically, most of your users come from one or maybe two channels. And it's like an 80-20 rule. So it's like 80% are gonna come from, let's say Google. Like let's say you're this company, NerdWallet, the founders I know, and they have a multi-billion dollar company. 80 or 90% of their revenue comes from people searching on Google like best credit card. And so they like worked so hard to like rank at number one. And now they do TV ads and stuff like that. But I would bet that it's still only like 20% of their customers. And that's the same thing with us. So, for a while, 100% came from blogging. That's how I got the first 100,000 users. Then, after that, a lot came through Facebook ads because it was cheap. And I knew that I could spend $1.50 there and I would make $10. So, I'm just spending a lot. And then, once I realized, oh, Facebook's not working as well, but it's still working. And then you start trying like Product Hunt or, and Product Hunt isn't nearly as big, but it's like an 80 20 thing. Like, or maybe it could have been closer to 70, 30. And that was part of my 30. And so it was important to have that, but product hunt simply doesn't have the the traffic that we needed, but 10 products could add up 10 product hunts, which we had would add up to be something interesting. It's just a much more pain in the ass to. So you got to hire people to just manage those relationships. Whereas Facebook, you still need a person, but one person theoretically can manage like hundreds of millions of dollars. Whereas with like 100 different small publishers, it's a little more challenging if I'm a creator listening to
1: this and I want to build my machine, how do I, as someone who has a big Instagram following or who has a podcast, how am I figuring out my lifetime value of somebody?
0: It's a simple equation. So just Google like what the lifetime value is. But basically, like um, from, for an Instagram person, it's a simple equation, but sometimes hard to find the answer. But a lot of times what I like to do is I just figure out what other people's are by their interviews. And I just assume that that's true until I can prove otherwise. But for Instagram, how would they do it? Well, you, you need to figure out if you're selling a product. Let's see. For Instagram, if you're selling a $300 product, I would say every time I post this, how much... Every time I post this, what's my click-through rate? And what's my um, conversion rate of people who pay? And how much revenue I am, am I making? So it's like, all right, every time I post this to a million people, I make $100,000. And I try to do that. I would do that a couple times. So then I know eventually it's like, great. So if I have 1.2 million people, I'm now converting of similar ratio. And now I've made $120,000. Therefore... I can spend blank, you know, whatever that math is, you just easily do that math, on acquiring a new Instagram user. And I'm gonna test it every single week to make sure these people that I'm buying through ads are high quality people and I'm keeping my rate, uh, my conversion rate similar to the assumptions that I made to c- calculate my, L- my lifetime value, which in this case it would be, lifetime value would be just how many, what's, what's the course that they buy or the product that they buy? What's the contribution margin? How often are they buying it? And how many of them are they buying? In this case, I would probably look at like what their e- annual spend is. Or if you're an Instagram person making money on ads, you, you, you say, all right, I have a million followers. Can I charge $30 per 1,000 impressions, which basically means $30,000 per post? If yes, you could just do a million divided by 1,000 divided by 30,000. I think that my math's right. And you'll figure out what is the average revenue Per one user. And that says, great, anything I can spend to acquire users that is below that of a rate, like below that enough that I'm comfortable. So, for example, let's say, like, look, I'm willing to spend money and not make money off these people for one year. And then you add that into your math and you're like, okay, great, I can spend this much money because, and I know I won't make money off them for the first year, but if I'm below that and my conversion rate of the clicks to the advertisers is staying at that same ratio, spend as much as I possibly can.
1: Plus, if you're putting that on a good credit card,
0: incredible rewards. <laughs> yeah. Did I explain that effectively? I, it could be complicated when you're not looking at an Excel spreadsheet.
1: Yeah. Well, no, you gave me the answer, which is like, this is math and you can figure it out. And here are the inputs that you need to figure it out. Uh, ConvertKit actually has a lot of this built in with their, their purchases. Uh, and this is something that I need to do better math on to dig into. Because you're right. It is, it is a machine. You have a product. You have a paid product. You should know what percentage is converting to buying that product so that you can treat the business like a machine and not you know, just your your identity.
0: Yeah, I, and, and I think that like even if you wanna be a craftsperson and stay small, you still don't wanna be guessing as much. And so it's important to do that. You're like, this is how much I make per person, therefore I could spend this much money to create more.
1: Last question, I heard you do an episode with Sean talking about your priorities for 2022 and you kind of settled on real estate, but one of your other opportunities that you had in there was building the the Sandpar brand. Where would you land in terms of where you focus your energy on different platforms today if you were doing that?
0: TikTok, easy, yeah. TikTok, 100%? TikTok and YouTube. A few years ago, LinkedIn was like this where you can get famous quickly on it, and I gained that system, and I remember getting millions of impressions, and I'm like, oh, found it. Gotta milk that until that's, uh, that's dry, and I did and then right now it's TikTok this is the version that that window will close soon but what you look for is the arbitrage between supply and demand of attention versus creators so for a long time LinkedIn had more demand than more demand than they did supply so there was a lot of eyeballs on it scrolling but there wasn't a lot of people like making content and so they had to show the content that people posted to a lot of people in order to make it feel full. And once you whenever you catch those those discrepancies, those gaps, you exploit it. And that's what I did with LinkedIn. That's what you can do right now on TikTok. I think that there's a lot of supply actually, but they're so good at categorizing and showing you what you want, that there's still like a little bit of a gap between supply, like, a, 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 and a you know, I don't know the right phrasing, but there's still like a difference between the supply and demand on TikTok. I think long-form YouTube videos are pretty wild. I think those are a great long way form. to... Long-form? Yeah, man. Um, like 20-minute long YouTube videos. If you're at a creator, like the enterprise value of your business is basically like, if you're making money through ads, it's like the quality of people that you have multiplied by the number of people multiplied by your influence over them. So for example, the attention of 1,000 billionaires who all want to buy a home in New Zealand to prepare for the end of the world is likely, or no, let's say the, the, the attention of 1,000 billionaires who are all in the market for a 747 jumbo jet is likely more valuable than the attention of 10 million 12-year-olds in Missouri. Right. Because right. like, right. Let's say you have a Purchasing 1% power. Pur- purchase rate of, I, of both of those ones like way more valuable. And the cool thing about YouTube is that if you're good enough at creating content, you can capture you can of that variable of that equation that I told you, which included like your power over them. Typically, your power over someone is correlated to the time spent consuming you. So a lot of my heroes, I like will consume a ton of their content. I know all about them. So when they say something, I'm a little bit more influenced. Same with my best friends. With YouTube, if you can capture someone's attention for 20 or 30 minutes, which people are doing on YouTube TV, I think it's really interesting. I think it's like incredibly cool. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that you're going long form on YouTube. A lot of people are like, well, it was TikTok and Reels and now it's YouTube Shorts. I'm more of a long form person generally. So I'm glad to hear that you think there's opportunity there.
0: I also think that if I'm just starting out, which like I was, I was into YouTube and then I was like, I don't want to do content at the moment. I'm still not ready to do it, but I would want to be on that treadmill as opposed to the short shit treadmill. I prefer longer because I think it would be better for me to, to scratch that itch. But also, I think there's dem- a lot of demand for it. I mean, I dude, I just watched a 40 minute long video today of a guy reviewing a Ford Raptor pickup truck. Totally. Like, I know all about this guy right now. Like, I'm to, like, I'm, I feel like I'm a gnome. So, like, I, whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to buy it.
1: I would also assume that there's just more evergreen nature to things that are long form than, like, there's no way you're going to go back five years from now, 100%. two years from now, and, and watch a TikTok that you saw today. Like, that's exactly. just burned time. Exactly. It always seems like we run out of time just as we're getting to some really interesting new territory. I would not have expected long form YouTube videos to be one of the platforms that Sam is the most bullish about right now, but his logic makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciated Sam's honesty in calling out how much of a grind it can be for solo creators today. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you're building the business around yourself, you will feel that grind day in and day out. And thinking ahead to be intentional so you don't build a prison for yourself is a really great idea. If you want to learn more about Sam, you can find him on Twitter at par, or search for My First Million here in your podcast player. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Sam for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please do. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.